AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, your host, along with Roz Manon for the April edition of AJT Highlights. Today, we're joined by Ilka Helentera, who is a transplant nephrologist at, in Helsinki, Finland, one of our AJT fellows. So this is his second go around at, at doing the podcast. We have a very busy schedule today for review of the editor's choice papers for AJT. A lot of good stuff. I'm going to go down the list of the five articles we're going to review, and then we'll get right to it. So the first two will be reviewed by Dr. Helantara. The first is entitled Factors Associated with Kidney Graft Survival in Pure Antibody-Mediated Rejection at the Time of Indication Biopsy, Importance of Parenchymal Injury but Not Disease Activity by Eineke et al., uh, with an editorial by Smith and Colvin. The second paper is by Markman's group, Phase 3 Trial of Human Islet After Kidney Transplantation in Type 1 Diabetes, with a paired editorial by Friedel and Strata. And then Raz will move into a brief report of uh, entitled Feasibility, Long-Term Safety, and Immune Monitoring of Regulatory T-Cell Therapy in Living Donor Kidney Transplant Recipients by Hardin and all. Then go into the next paper, which is Novel Delivery of Cellular Therapy to Reduce Ischemia Reperfusion in Kidney Transplantation by Thompson et al. with a paired editorial by Steichen and Erpicum. And then end with a basic science paper on entitled B lymphocytes contribute to indirect pathway T-cell sensitization via acquisition of extra vest extracellular vesicles by Becker et al. with um, editorials by Colas and Bruard. So we got a lot to get to. So um, Ilka, why don't you start off with the first paper? Thanks, Josh. And, and thanks again for the opportunity to join this podcast as a fellow. This has been a wonderful experience so far. So this first paper I present is entitled Factors Associated with Kidney Graft Survival in Pure Antibody-Mediated Rejection at the Time of Indication Biopsy, Importance of Parenchymal Injury but Not Disease Activity by Eineke et al. And as some background, there are many studies published recently and also many ongoing looking at molecular events going on in the graft biopsies. Uh, there are several techniques, many of them commercial and reproducible, and they exist currently to look at the gene expression profile from the biopsies. Uh, what is very interesting in this particular study is that the authors have really tried to look at a bit bigger picture, so trying to include all factors, clinical, histological, and molecular features, and to look at the prognostic value of these different features. Uh, this study included indication biopsies collected as a part of a prospective multi-center study, including more than 1,600 kidney graft biopsies. And for the current study, 1,120 biopsies were selected, including 321 with pure antibody-mediated rejection. Histology read was done locally, and standard of care was also defined locally. And the purpose was to look at factors that would predict graft loss within three years from this indication biopsy. Uh, they used the molecular microscope diagnostic system, MMDX, which is a molecular system for biopsy interpretation uh, using microarrays and machine learning algorithms. 
The biopsies were classified for individual band lesion scores and also for molecular features of previously described gene sets, such as T-cell-mediated rejection, different categories of ABMR, but also molecular features of acute kidney injury, which include transcripts associated with injury and repair responses. And in addition, they developed some new molecular classifiers for biopsies taken with low EGFR or proteinuria, and they were referred to as molecular features of chronic kidney disease. Uh, of these more than 1,100 patients, altogether 166 grafts failed within three years from the biopsy. And the focus was to look at the risk factors for this three-year graft loss, both in the whole cohort and also separately in those patients who showed pure antibody-mediated rejection in the biopsy based on the molecular features seen in the microarray system. And in a multivariate analysis in the full population, the important risk factors for graft loss were EGFR and molecular features of acute kidney injury or CKD, followed by timing of biopsy, proteinuria, and transplant glomerulopathy lesions. And findings were pretty similar in the pure ABMR group. So the molecular features of ABMR or T-cell mediated rejection or any other histological lesion scores, they contributed only very little or not at all to the prediction of the outcome. And interestingly, also within the ABMR group, the presence of donor-specific antibodies or the histological or molecular activity of ABMR were not correlated with the outcome. Finally, they tested the accuracy of their model with including either all data, so molecular, histological, and clinical data, or only some part of these data. Quite logically, combining all data showed the best accuracy. Molecular data alone had the best accuracy if only including one type of data, but also almost similar accuracy was reached with only clinical data. And adding histological data added quite little to the models. The authors conclude that at the indication biopsy, the dominant predictors of failure, both in all kidneys and kidneys with pure antibody-mediated rejection, were related to molecular features of acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease injury to the graft or to graft function at the time of biopsy, but not to rejection activity measured either histologically or molecularly. So, what, what could we learn from this study? First, I think this is a very important study with prospective data collection and very large sample size and with very much detailed data presented. The findings and interpretations make sense, at least to me. It seems that rejection activity itself is not so well predicted of the outcome. Uh, this might also be related to the possible treatment received because this was not included in the analysis. So, it seems that more important is the injury that is present already at the time of biopsy, which is reflected by the EGFR or proteinuria and also the molecular pattern of the injury response. But what is the cause of the injury is perhaps not so relevant as such. More important is the nature and severity of the injury itself. And I think this repeats findings from many other parts of nephrology where biopsies are analyzed. <clears throat> there are some stereotypic types of response to injury that lead to scarring of the kidney and the original cause is perhaps less relevant compared to the type of injury it has caused. I think one thing to remember when looking at these results is that uh, this study analyzed indication biopsies, which is a totally different setting compared to many other studies that have analyzed protocol biopsies taken during stable conditions and usually good graft function. But I, I think this was a very interesting 
study? What kind of comments would you have? So it's interesting that here's a group that has been studying the molecular microscope, and in fact, most of the reference refer to their past papers to come up with this conclusion. But I, I do think it's relevant because, and, and I know you're a nephrologist, Ilka, we've had those biopsies where, you know, the rejection may be like a 1B, but they have so much edema and a lot of inflammation, and, and, and you just can't get the biopsy back. The, the function isn't great to begin with. And then you can have these 2A, 2Bs where you can really assault them with immunosuppression and it gets better. And so I like this notion of an acute kidney injury, you know, you know, and that's being prob primarily the runner and, and the notion of CKD and not so much well, what caused it. So, you know, how does that affect BAMP? I thought the editorial was sort of interesting. They walked in, it's pathologists and they walked an interesting tightrope again, you know, I love pathology and I think it has a role and I guess it, it makes you think about another level of how patients respond and these notions of, of what's, how acute is acute, how much tubular injury is there, how much parenchyma is acutely injured, can you get that back, does it matter whether the T-score is a three or a one, this makes you think otherwise and maybe, you know, thinking about these lower grade rejections and borderline, which is, you know, borderline to me is in the eyes of the beholder, you know, because if the GFR is off, right, and you do the biopsy, it's borderline, I treat them, I don't say, oh, it's borderline, I'm not going to. I mean, so I, I think there's a lot of need in this paper, so to speak. Here's a question back. I was surprised by the Danish proverb, since you're in Scandinavia, prediction is hard, especially for future. I thought that was kind of clever, but we didn't know this that, that we would have Scandinavia represented today, so I won't put you on the spot for that proverb. I do have, yeah. I do have a question for you all. Uh, there are actually two questions, and I, I'd like the, our podcast to try to also, you know, with each paper, it, it, what is sort of the practice changing impact uh, of this work or potential or is it just a kind of a novel you know just interesting and novel um, and the the second are these signatures of aki related to aki in kidney recipients or aki in the general population and would it be a value to compare those signatures in you know non-transplant AKI patients to see if there, there's some cross similarity. Any of you guys? Uh, I'm not actually quite sure. I have the impression that these gene sets that they, they are described in the in the transplant setting, but maybe, yeah. maybe Ross can comment on that. Yeah, no. So, you know, it was a lot of years of, of work from almost two decades now, to be honest, that Phil Halloran really did this and, and Ganell Einicke was involved. So the initial transcript sets were developed in animal models and then you know, and then verified in some human studies, and then they went back in vitro. So my recollection is that the AKI, ATN phenomena was based in transplant. However, a kidney to me is a kidney, and you could probably, you know, utilize, I mean, I don't think that they've done any non-transplant tissue intercomics, but of course, Phil, Dr. Halloran will listen to this, and then I'll get a, a nasty gram email, maybe, but um, I don't recall that they've done this in native kidneys before. Um, That'd be really so interesting I, if they had. Yeah, their hands it would on be. Us. I mean, you asked yeah. a great. That's a great question, and I can't remember the second question was the CKD. I mean, I think that these transcripts, I think, are um, you know the way a tissue responds to injury. So I don't mm -hmm. think it matters whether you assault it with an immunological injury or you you know, cause a viral injury in sepsis or whatever, or, you know, inflammatory injury like COVID. My suspicion is this is a sort of a repetitive stereotypical response of the tissue to the injury. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would. What I, what I find most important maybe is that it's it's always very difficult if you have graft function in the model because it's 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 such a strong predictor of graft outcome. So if there's graft failure or dysfunction, it is it is very difficult to overcome that effect. So in a in a transplant congress, there was this guy who had a T-shirt saying that creatinine is the best biomarker in tra in kidney transplantation. So so it's still true, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, great. Uh, we could go on and on about this one, but let's move to the next one. Yes. So uh, the title of the second paper is Phase 3 Trial of Human Islet After Kidney Transplantation in Type 1 Diabetes. And the first author is James Markman. As background, after some initial quite high hopes for pancreatic islet cell transplantation as beta cell replacement therapy, this treatment has not at all been widely adopted due to maybe several reasons. For example, in our institutions, we have our institution we had an islet cell transplant program more than 10 years ago, which has not been active for some time and mostly due to a bit disappointing long-term results. But since then, there has been a lot of development on this field and it was very interesting for me to see the results of this multi-center effort. So this current study reports findings from a phase three trial of purified human pancreatic islet transplantation for patients with type one diabetes and a prior kidney transplant. And this continues the work of this consortium who have earlier reported the results from islet cell transplantation in patients with type 1 diabetes and normal renal function that is published in 2016. So this current study was an open-label single-arm study in 10 centers in North America, including 24 patients. The inclusion criteria were type 1 diabetes with absence-stimulated C-peptide, previous kidney transplant with stable function, and they had to have impaired awareness of hypoglycemia and a history of severe hypoglycemic event within the last year or failure to achieve glycemic control with intensive insulin therapy. And actually all the patients met the hypoglycemia criterion. This dose of islet transplant was prepared in local manufacturing facilities from a single pancreas and transplanted by portal vein infusion. Those who were not insulin independent at 30 days could receive a second or after that a third dose within eight months. CNI-based maintenance immunosuppression, which they already had from the kidney transplant transplant was continued, but induction with either 8-AG or basiliximab and etanercept was given with each transplant and up to 10 milligrams of prednisone was allowed as a part of the maintenance regimen. And for the results, 11 patients received a single infusion, 11 patients received two infusions, and two patients received three infusions. Within the first year, five patients, that is 21% of the patients, rejected the transplanted islets. The primary endpoint was achieving an HbA1c below 6.5% or a reduction in the HbA1c of more than one point in the absence of any severe hypoglycemias. At one year, this was achieved by 15 patients and that is 63%. And the effect remains so that at three years, the primary endpoint was still reaching 46% of patients. Quite logically, reaching the primary endpoint correlated with the number of infusions received and with the administered islet mass. One year after transplantation, 79% of the patients were free of severe hypoglycemias. And we have to remember that they all had severe hypoglycemias within the year before the transplant. And this effect remained still at 
three years in 63% of the patients. Insulin requirements decreased dramatically and this also this effect remained quite well up to three years. Um, insulin independence on the other hand was reached by 38% at one year and only 17% at three years. Uh, impaired awareness of hypoglycemia was practically abolished with the transplant and glycemic liability was dramatically reduced and this effect was also maintained up to three years. Glucose balance in this study was measured with very many different parameters and they all showed very much improved glucose balance and also significant improvements in quality of life measures were seen. So what about safety issues? 22 serious adverse events were recorded and they were mostly related to the induction immunosuppression or also later to the immunosuppressive treatment which all of these patients already had for the for the transplanted kidney. There was one patient who experienced portal vein branch thrombosis that resolved within six months of with six months of anticoagulation. No kidney graft rejections were seen and kidney function remained stable and no new donor specific antibodies against the kidney donor were detected. Two patients developed DSAs against the pancreas donor and also these patients showed islet graft failure within the first year. So what would be the conclusion from this study? First, I think this study shows that islet after kidney transplantation from a third party donor is safe for the kidney and I think that is one of the most important messages because the kidney is the most important factor for the prognosis of these patients. Although some of the grafts were lost during the first year, islet after kidney transplantation can really improve glycemic control, ameliorate hypoglycemic problems and improve quality of life. As I think has also been seen previously, insulin independence is not often reached and I think maybe this shouldn't even be our goal, but we should choose the right patients for, for this islet transplantation who really benefit from this treatment and so they would be patients with problematic hypoglycemias or otherwise poor glycemic control and how this translates into long-term outcomes or progression of diabetic complications that remains to be seen and one more thing of course manufacturing these products is technically challenging and expensive but in this study they were successfully manufactured in 10 different facilities with good results so that is also very very important finding so thanks would be nice to hear your your comments about this so um i think it's great to see this data finally published because i've been around a while and um, was involved in some of the first eyelid transplants solo eyelid transplants at nih now like two decades ago it's hard to believe and you know that was such a great time because you know james shapiro had this paper everybody was excited we dedicated you know not we we is the big we but but david harlan and his team dedicated a tremendous effort to isolate cells and 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 do it and we transplanted a number of solo patients but we this was always a study we thought we wanted to do and one of the reasons is the patients that we did who seemingly had normal function really did have drops in GFR from the common therapy and CNI was really utilized and we tried to switch to mTOR and there were issues. So I think the, the bigger problem I see is overall that the, the that we as a field have to decide is how we're going to manage type 1 diabetes. You know, pancreas transplant rates in the U.S. have gone way down. In fact, we're always worried about proficiency now in these programs and the only reason I can stay relevant is I've done so many accumulated over time in different places. So, you know, is islet going to overtake pancreas at some point? Maybe not. And uh, it's just a shame because I think this was a great proof to show that one, the kidney wasn't affected. Like you said, no DSA, 
no attributable. You know, we were all worried about sensitization and attributed immune injury. Um, but I don't know, um, you know, seeing my own personal view is that the pancreas is struggling to keep up with all the novel, you know, ways of managing a type 1 diabetic. But in these patients that are hypoglycemically unaware, that aren't gigantic in size, this is maybe a great opportunity, especially when they have kidney failure. But it's going to be like at a handful of centers. Sort of almost feels like worth it, uh, although expensive and laborious, kind of worth a try in a way if you can get some of the patients off of off of insulin and have better glycemic control. And, and what I mean is it's not... Um, affecting the doesn't appear to be affecting the kidney graft itself or uh, or other outcomes. But I imagine the summary is that this is promising, but not really definitive, and still may. I, mean, I, I think it's actually definitive, but I think that it's so much effort to do these programs and. Yeah. And you have to maybe have centers of excellence. And let me tell you something, everybody on this byline is is an expert, and, and most of them, and they would want to keep the center at their place. And, you know, am I going to argue with Minnesota versus Wisconsin? No. Um, but I think that um, in Miami, I mean, I'm looking at the names, MGH, Miami. I mean, I'm thinking James Shapiro. I mean, I could you know, do a whole podcast on what, you know, islets and where we're going. But I think it would have to, I, I hope that these labs continue their proficiency, right? Because I'm not ready to give up on islets as a routine therapy, but I think it would have to be select cases. And certainly the morbidity of a pancreas transplant is mm-hmm. much higher than, than these islet patients. And I, I like they used a tanner sep, which was an improvement to reduce the acute inflammation. Um, yeah, I think it's nice to say that we have several options for different types of patient, and this this islet is, is certainly should be one option for certain type of patients. Do you have any uh, islets interest in Finland? Is anybody doing any work there? Uh, yes, we had a program some time ago, and we have been thinking of starting up it again. They have a center in Uppsala and Oslo where we had collaboration previously. So we sent the disease donor pancreases there, and we get the islets back, and we have this kind of collaboration. So I think we have some plans to continue. After seeing these results also, I think we have many patients who would benefit from this this kind of treatment. Okay, Raz, thank you. Okay, you did a great job. Um, uh, Raz? Uh, All right, I have, what, tw- 10 minutes to do three papers? A little more time, but yeah. So uh, in, in the continuation of cell-based therapy, I'll do the next paper by Harden et al. This is a brief communication feasibility and long-term and immune monitoring of regulatory T-cells and living donor kidney transplant recipients. So this is a brief report of 12 living donor kidney transplant patients who received, uh, were part of a phase one clinical trial receiving adoptive transfer of regulatory T-cells, specifically on post-op day five. So again, regulatory T-cells, we know they exist to reduce and suppress inflammatory responses so they don't go on unabated. And, you know, a, a big body of work since the mid-late 2000s, last decade, looking at, you know, augmenting Tregs in the circulation and how to do that. And so this trial was based on significant supportive preclinical data that and, and sort of that these are naturally occurring immune modulatory cells. And this work was put forward by I think two important experiments, there's probably others, but Catherine Wood showing in a, in a transhuman model that you could limit chronic injury by using ex vivo adopted transfer cells in a mouse model, which was a nature paper, and another where we were able to expand these cells uh, ex vivo 
uh, as predominantly polyclonal autologous T-regs, and that's some work obviously done by Jeff Bluestone and, and UCSF and others. So this trial was one of several in this multi-center, multi-country, one study, O-N-E study, um, that, uh, that, that some of us have remembered from other transplant meetings where they were testing the feasibility and safety of different cell-based therapies that were immunomodulatory. Uh, one example was the mesenchymal stem cell. So this is a, a prospective study, has a clever design. It's two, cohort, it's two cohorts uh, run simultaneously, uh, two transplant centers in the UK, though the product was done elsewhere. There is a cell-based therapy group and a standard of care reference cohort run almost simultaneously with the goal of whether, you know, to determine if you could administer these cells and if it was one, safe, and two, able to regulate immune responses, but with avoidance of induction therapy, which is important, obviously, because all the anti-T-cell-based therapies would affect these cells, and with minimizing immunosuppression. And they had a primary endpoint of biopsy-proven rejection and transplant survival in the first 60 weeks of transplant and extended their follow-up to about four years. I think if you look at figure one, if you have the paper open while you're listening to me, yap, it's much like Symphony um, in terms of some of their targets. And importantly, when they set this up, they created this reference standard of care to mirror the same inclusion and exclusion criteria. So we're not you know, dealing with apples and oranges comparison. The cell-based therapy people were really good patients, you know, low immune risk, and then the reference group was random. It was really pretty equally matched. Uh, the Tregs were taken from the host and then expanded ex vivo and then adoptively transplanted, and they did a dose escalation in this embedded to see the level of safety. So the initial three patients got lower doses of Tregs. A total of 15 patients were enrolled. Three were excluded from the cell therapy group because they didn't have either adequate products, so to speak, or there was bacterial contamination. There was no induction. They used triple therapy, the standard triples that we're used to in kidney transplant. The cohorts were well matched. I mean, there's a lot more men than women. Uh, obviously here, and uh, you can't fix that, but it, it is the, the, the two groups are matched. And there were more preemptive kidney transplants in the T-reg group, 75% versus about 50 in the control group. Again, they were trying to match the conditions to be very similar. Everyone had great grass survival, 100%, and, and both groups had estimated GFRs at, at four years of about 53 to 55, which is great. Now, some of these other endpoints like biopsy-proven rejection, though it was lower, in the T-reg group, meaning zero episodes, it trended statistically lower than in the controls, which was about 21%. They did do some surveillance biopsies, and interestingly, um, there were some biopsies where they could detect uh, Fox3 uh, positive regulatory cells in the biopsy, but that was a, a minority of, of purple cells. There were a couple of biopsies where they had probably low levels of I hate to say rejection, but there was inflammation and because eventually these patients, as you can see, were tapered off, tapered down on their immunosuppression. And again, I, I don't want to get into some of those specifics, I think, because the main thing is this is really a proof of concept. It, it shows that it's feasible to expand Tregs, um, to cryopreserve them, and then to infuse them safely, that there is an increase in peripheral regulatory T cell counts after the initial infusion, although those numbers appear to go down. There were comparable outcomes. I'm not going to say, oh, there was no rejection. I think that that's apparent. But there were really comparable outcomes with a contemporary 
cohort that is a similar immunological risk. And the group had stable renal algraft function. By the way, the, there was no development of DSA uh, in the cell-based therapy group. And again, though they were, you know, they're on monotherapy with tacrolimus in the end. So it's not like this is, oh, well, that's because of that. I mean, there's some significant implications of the benefits of this therapy and a nicely done study because it's all over the world and you're you know moving these cells around from other places so questions that you guys may have i was wondering sort of i mean i think that the statements about comparing to the reference group in terms of outcomes are at least it's not they're not worse outcomes than a reference group but i'm not sure you can say they were better these weren't randomized uh, to the treatment or not right but you, no, thought, no. you felt that they were pretty they're fairly comparable but it seems like more they were utilized just to monitor a standard population and look at their cell phenotypes to compare to those who got Tregs over time, which I think is useful. Um, yeah, and and again, know. I think it was again a proof of concept because you've got you know fifteen yeah. patients versus twenty, so these patients you know had relative stability over time. Now they did get these focal infiltrates, and there was a discussion of what was the content of these cells and, and looking at regulatory T cell expression. I can't remember all the specifics, but it is in the paper. But again, it's one of these very large consortia where I thought these were pretty impressive results, and this is tough work. I mean. You know, you have to screen, uh, having worked with CTOT21 and, and Dr. Vincenti at UCSF, you know, half the problem is getting enough product. And, um, you know, these are polyclonally reactive. And so um, in some cases, you may have presumed there might be a trigger for rejection and worsening function. But these were fine, even though they're poly, I mean, polyclonally, meaning they give them like anti-CD3 and, and uh, they stimulate them both signal one, signal two in a non-donor specific fashion. And that's like another part of this study that I will still pick. What was the uh, the other, the induction was with basiliximab in the other group, it looks like, yeah. Uh, yeah, because yeah. this group got okay. zero. And again, you can imagine that you don't want to be giving out something, you know, CD25 yeah. and, and, you know, inhibition was not favored. But I recall that this was basiliximab. Really, the way they set up the reference group is really like the the, um, the standard yeah yeah as the standard but it was sort of set up as the um it's the symphony oh study symphony oh my god how yeah. did i forget yeah. that i'm gonna get i'm gonna get bad emails no i just i just thought it was uh but i thought that was interesting about this paper was a little more of how they've labeled t-regs as sort of their induction in a way i just yeah. thought it was yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. uh you know as as a replacement, while, while basiliximab is not too harmful of an induction agent, you imagine having similar outcomes and not being able to use induction seems, could be significant, you know? So I, mean, uh, so I would say I'm not a European, but I hail from Europe several generations ago. You know, a lot of European patients don't use induction. They don't use, uh, you know, cell depletion or non-depletional as well. Now, I don't think that's true in Finland, right, Ilka, you guys? Yeah, we don't use that much induction, so you're right, and it's I, I, I think it's a phenomenon here, because in the U.S., I, I think all the kidneys are transplanted after induction, but, but it's not the same all over here, so... But I was really, really happy to see these results because I, I, I know the tremendous amount of work that they, they have had to do for this kind of study. Because I 
I did my postdoc in Berlin in in one of the centers who participated in this one yeah. study. I had I had nothing to do with this this study, but I closely followed these people who were working with this, and it's 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 such a huge amount of work already starting from the regulatory approvals for the for this kind of product. So 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 it's I was very happy to see these results, and also last year in the Lancet paper, it's it's. It's really great to see that these things that you've heard about in meetings finally coming through and then transporting these products across country lines. Um, I think that this was manufactured actually in London, so they, they kept it within the UK. But the way the one study was set up, there was actually an opportunity to send these products from one country to the other. Because again, just like islets, manufacturing these cells is a specific, there's a cocktail now, but it's just like, you know, organoids too. You gotta have the right secret sauce and you gotta do it right and you have to be careful. And it's hard culture cells. People think it's just like you throw them in like it's a clone and it's not, that's not the way to be nurture like our AJT fellows. <laughs> All right, I keep, I better All keep right. going because we're going to have podcasts, cut. some great podcast humor. So, yeah, and they'll probably okay. cut it out. But anyway, um, so the next paper is by Emily Thompson uh, and colleagues from Cambridge and uh, Newcastle and Tyne. There's a bunch of uh, groups working with this. This is normal delivery of cellular therapy to reduce IRI, ischemia reperfusion injury in kidneys. So this study focuses on a new approach to reduce ischemic injury and to optimize function of, sub, of suboptimal brain-dead donor kidneys. And again, we are aware of the discard rates in the U.S. and abroad that, you know, the fear of ischemic reperfusion injury and going past cold and warm ischemic times. Um, and so this notion of using normothermic perfusion is not a new concept. This has been developed by a number of groups and using ex vivo perfusion with a temperature of 36.5. And certainly other studies have looked at cold um, perfusion to allow cell-based therapies and manipulation, but this is one of the first groups to not only combine normothermic perfusion, but to also include a cell-based therapy. So cell-based therapy is the theme today. And they used a multipotent adult progenitor cell called an MAPC, not something that I was familiar with before reading this, so I learned something. Um, these cells lack class two and customatory molecules, but they express class one. And in some other transplant models, they have been shown to be immunomodulatory, specifically a rat heart model. Um, and they've also been studied in rat versus host, ARDS, some other inflammatory conditions. And they're like these mesenchymal stem cells, MSCs that we've talked about, but they're a different origin and they have some little differences that I don't think I know enough about to say much about other than don't call them MSCs because they're not. This is really a proof of concept trial, again, meaning small numbers, a total of five paired kidneys, so five brain dead donors. These were all gonna be discarded, 10 total kidneys randomized to either standard norothermic perfusion with oxygenated blood, red blood cell-based perfusate versus those getting this um, infusion of this product from a company called Atheresis, I think. I'll probably mispronounce that, but it's um, a, a biomanufacturer where they took these cells from healthy bone marrow donors and they actually loaded them with a red marker so you could actually find them. Importantly, what this paper shows is that there was no hemodynamic impact of cell infusions during uh, the normothermic perfusion. Um, they looked at some biomarkers of acute kidney injury because, again, these were discarded kidneys with presumed bad outcomes, and they saw a decrease in urinary endgal that came out of the, you know, out of the out of the urine from the ureter, but didn't see really much difference in some of the other biomarkers like HEM1 
they did do serial cytokine profiles looking at the perfusate and showed uh, an increase in IL-10, for example, an increase in IDO, which is a T-cell regulator uh, found on, Fox, uh, on, on regulatory T-cells in FOXP3 positive cells, and a decrease in interleukin-1-beta, but they didn't see big differences in pro-inflammatory things we think of like TNF and IL-6, um, gamma interferon and the like. I thought what was most impressive in, in some ways is really their figures where they do the immunohistochemistry uh, or immunofluorescence figures. One, they looked at the perfusion, which is in figure 1G, which looks pretty cool because you can actually see the medulla lighting up. But also in figure 3, they actually show the localization of these cells that, you know, they have biopsies from zero, one, and four hours, and you can see the MAPCs in the glomeruli and actually in the peritubular space in the medulla as you get further out over time. So sort of an interesting uh, concept. They did not transplant these kidneys. They basically showed that they were able to perfuse these kidneys and manipulate them. And interestingly, you know, the timing of infusion, these are questions that come up from a practical perspective. You know, when is the timing and how long would these cells survive to mitigate injury? I think the the, the Poitier group, who does a lot of this sort of preclinical model IRI work, noted some additional limitations in terms of follow-up of these of these of these kidneys and what would be the impact long term. You know, is there going to be, we don't know if there's going to be a change in graft survival. We don't have any idea what they would do in a host. We don't know how viable these cells are long term and any impact of immunosuppression in the host once you do the transplant. And, you know, what happens if you perfuse them for more than four hours? And, and you know, because a lot of times ex vivo perfusion may go on for 18, 24 hours. And with the new allocation rules in the U.S., who knows? It'll be days. No, I'm just kidding. But again, I think it's kind of a, a nice, again, kind of a clever concept, new concept in, in a group, in a, in a collaborative group. So I thought that was impressive. Hopefully, yeah, I think the... Uh... I think the cool part of this is just the ability to deliver cell therapy during machine perfusion. And they claim this was the first reported series in in uh, kidney transplant. I, I wasn't even I think aware. I think they meant oh. the, in, in normothermic perfusion as opposed okay. to cold ex vivo pump-based perfusion that most of us do. We don't do, you know, on a clinical basis, we just do regular cold perfusing, mm-hmm. which is, I think, UW solution, not this cocktail of oxygenated blood. And, and again, there's a lot of data using normothermic perfusion, uh, you know, ELP for liver, right? Liver now, lung, mm-hmm. kidney, but to combine it now with a cell-based therapy. Yeah, that's the, that's the, yeah, I was saying just the, the combining a, a kind of a approach to add to the, um, you know, it's almost in a way sort of cleaning up the inflammation or by infusing these cells in addition to just perfusing it. Yeah, and I didn't go back, you know, I didn't go back, I'm sorry, Josh, and and look at studies that have been done with these MAPCs in other inflammatory conditions. I, you know, like I know MSCs have been looked at in humans and lots of different disease bases like autoimmune disease and such, but I really didn't spend time looking it up. I just thought, wow, that's, I haven't heard about these cells and um, whether this might be something that could be, um, you know, those guys that recently in Zurich did the one week perfusion of the liver. Is this something where you could minimize, you could maintain viability of tissue in a shorter period of time? I mean, I think it's great that you can keep something viable for a week, but 
you know, what if you combine this to those kind of success stories and, and really bring back some of these organs we're growing out. And let the surgeons get some sleep at night and do the transplant the next day. Right. That's what this is all about. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, fi one final paper. Uh, all right. I've got like no minutes, but it's probably better because I'm not a basic scientist anymore. I was a bench scientist at one point in my life. So I will refer people to this paper, which is paradigm shifting. This is by Becker and, uh, and colleagues in Giovanna Lombardi's lab um, in King's College London. So this lab has been uh, been challenging the sort of canonical theories of allo recognition, meaning how we recognize foreign antigens. And they've talked a lot about semi-direct recognition. Well, this is like a new concept, and I won't have time to go through it all, but I'll point out the big picture. And the big picture is the notion that B cells actually can activate indirect recognition in T cells. I think we think of B cells as sort of activated by T cells and they become antibody producing, you know, uh, manufacturing machines. But in the way that they set up this study, which is a mouse skin graft model, so pretty stringent, they demonstrate that B cells are able to acquire uh, intact class one and two molecules and class one peptides by extra, extra vesicles in secondary inflow organs. And so that these B cells now have characteristics to activate T cells and their work suggests that they call them cross-dressed B cells. I'm not excited about that terminology personally because it's just, you know, in these days and days of diversity, it bothers me, but um, that's how they call them. And this work like this has been done in both dendritic cells and other models like heart and skin animal models. But I think again, the notion when I trained in the way that I think most of us think of it is that passenger leukocytes, passenger antigen presenting cells can trigger rejection early on. And that's why we flush the organ and that's why we heavily immunosuppress patients. But this study really suggests that B cells, or host B cells can acquire donor antigen and they can actually stimulate uh, T cells to respond. They have a, an indirect allo recognition skin graft model. In mice, they use some congenic strains to do this. Um, and when they deplete uh, B cells, they actually can get prolonged survival. And this is not related to any effects, uh, differences in IL-10, because they use an IL-10 deficient animal. What's novel, too, about this study is the ability that extracellular vesicles can actually transfer class 1 uh, antigens and peptides. And they do this on, on several different levels. They some in vitro studies with bone marrow-derived extracellular vesicles from one strain of animal load them with CFSE, which is a dye that you can follow both um, proliferation of those cells, but also track them both by flow cytometry or by microscopy. And then they transfer those cells in, that they culture them, and then they show that um, these cells become positive. And so they must fuse somehow with these extracellular vesicles. And they do some in vitro studies too, taking these B cells and showing that once they acquire these um, other strain of, of MHC, they can actually activate T cells indirectly in vitro. So I think, again, a novel way of thinking about B cells, particularly early post-transplant. I know we've debated anti-CD20 early on or not, uh, but their data, at least in these animal models and in vitro, suggests that B cells have a capability. They have a capability of, of indirect presentation and this notion that there's these vesicles floating around that can transfer antigen is really, I think, very unusual. And, and, and one of the other theories, and this was brought up and discussed 
dominantly in the editorial is, you know, can these potentially be used? Is there a way to make this as a pro-tolerant mechanism? Could you exploit this in humans? Because you've got these passenger leukocytes, which are considered microchimeric cells. Can you create an allospecific tolerance by having tolerogenic extracellular vesicles in the circulation and having recipient APCs not get what's going on and, and, and not sending a cue that this is allogeneic. So I didn't do this paper any justice, and next time we'll have to call the... the uh, but, but I think, you know, it's it, this, this is why you should look at the paper, and, and it's it's definitely a paradigm shift for me. I mean, this is not the way we were taught alloantigen yeah. presentation. Yeah, it makes you, I mean, whenever I think about B cells, you're thinking of, you know, uh, antibody production and that that's the way that they injure the graft. And in this circumstance is kind of blocking them from presenting antigen um, and targeting the antigen presenting cell, you know, really early on, you have to do this. Um, right, because this is the first array of adapt of the um, adaptive immune responses that indirect early indirect presentation. So you, you brought up the idea of, of anti-CD20 or B-cell therapies to target this, you know, in addition to DSAs and antibodies being produced by the cells. But yeah, it's a real interesting way of thinking about this. Yeah, and I think so, this was a really nice reconstructed paper. It had really a lot of different type of experiments to show the same idea. So I think it was a really, really nice paper to read and really, really worth looking into. Yeah, and I think, you know, not everybody has a PhD, but I think it's well written so that, you know, you know, even though I don't do all these models and know all the congenic strains anymore, I can sort of figure it out. And, and I, I do think that sometimes is a, is a challenge for clinicians when they read this because they don't know black six is H2B and D and this. But it, I think it, it's just a really nicely done. And it's just interesting. I mean, you know, I just mm. never thought of, of B cell. I mean, I thought of them as being sort of non-professional antigen presenting cells, but they show you that they actually are professional. They have an ability to do, to, to activate T cells. And so, you know, again, going back to the notion of getting rid of B cells on the initial post-transplant period, I don't know if we're ready for that because there's been negative stuff, bad studies showing not so great outcomes, but certainly as this theory, as this work develops further, it's important to be challenged to think about the cells not in their standard. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up this one a little longer, but I think justifiable. These were great papers. Um, you all, I sat quietly and, and listened. There were no liver papers this month, but hopefully next month I'll be able to provide some input there. I just want to thank uh, uh, Roz and Ilka for a great you know, great presentations and discussion, and we will see you in May. Take care, everybody. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.